G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Thursday, the 16th of November and our topics this week are Optus has had a national outage. It's left millions without mobile phone reception and internet and I'm one of them, and I'm really not happy about it. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it today. I'm going to have a whinge. And Prime Minister Albanese goes to China. Hope he got some goodies to bring back. We'll have a bit of a discussion about that later on. But, of course, we've got our Two Tooks Town talk in between, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deed, and we'll finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up with the last week. Uh, Dete, what's been going on? G'day, DK. Uh, I have not been up to a huge amount. You know, my normal sort of uh, gardening and uh, seeing how the tomatoes are coming on. I've had a bit of a talk about them before, but I've been awaiting my dream cycle. After the uh, this, uh, it was a while ago. My wife and I were discussing, I wonder if the phase of the moon changes how much you dream. Because I'll oftentimes, I don't know uh, how many people do this, but um, if I have a dream in the middle of the night and I sort of wake up from the dream, I'll make a couple of notes on my phone so that when I wake up in the morning, I think, oh, that's right, a bit of a prompt and I'll I'll write it out a little bit more and then I'm sort of, Trying to analyse that on um, the whiteboard for different re- recurrent themes and, and just out of interest, uh, but also one of the things we thought, oh, I wonder if we dream differently at different uh, phases of the, the moon. So the last, uh, we, I started off, wife sort of lost, lost a bit of interest in that, but I've been doing it now for probably about, I don't know, six months or something. Right. And this, yeah, Possibly, possibly a little bit longer, but about at least six months. Uh, so at this particular phase of the, the the moon, I'm starting to come into the period where I expect a a, a bit of a higher uh, occurrence of of interesting dreams. So look, having having said that, my subconscious is probably going to say it doesn't work that way. You've just got to you've just got to accept what we give you. But there's part of me sort of thinking, oh, because look, I love dreaming. I love um, like the experience of of dreaming. So, uh, according to my records, I should be <laughs> in the next uh, next over the next few nights. I should be having some uh, some decent dreams. So, um, part of me is actually looking. For, well, a lot of me is actually looking forward to that because I do do like that. And I'm gonna, we'll have to check in with you and see if your theory yes. holds true. We will look now. It's not, it's it's um, it, it's you look at the results coming in, and it's like there's sort of a uh, a higher. I mean, it's not sort of like you know one converse versus a, a, a ten, but it's sort of like lots of um, it's it's like a cluster around here. So yeah, I'll be I'll check. I'll tell you how it goes uh, over the next couple of weeks if uh, if I remember or if you remember. So yeah, that's what I've been. That's what I've been uh, waiting for. Um, and what about you? What have you been up to? I have been. It's all about dance at the moment. 
we've got my daughter's dance recital, her concert coming up in the next couple of weeks. So it is all dance crazy uh-huh. practice, uh, rehearsals. Uh, she does ballet and jazz. She, so she does two different ones. So, um, And as a result, I am really sick of seeing uh, <laughs> just young girls dancing, uh, fighting over costumes and all the rest. It's um, I'll be glad to see the end of the dance season. I- I'm sure there's a lot of parents listening that knows exactly what I mean. It is full on. It's a huge time sink. The girls seem to absolutely love it. And of course, that's what it's all about. Um, yeah. But I will be glad uh, when, when it's finally over in, in a couple more weeks. So we've got, I think, three more weeks of dance and then it's and then it's all done for the year so uh but of course not for very long because it kicks off uh in the new year so um, <laughs> we don't get much of a break it's not like sports uh we, we sort of get a couple of months off it's um yeah so uh we'll, we have a break for christmas which i'm very much looking forward to uh but let's talk about things i'm not happy about uh, Speaking of things breaking, <laughs> yeah, Optus has had an outage uh, last week that affected ten million customers, uh, and and as I said, I was one of them, and I'm not happy about it. Optus says that it was changes to routing information after a routine. I'm do, I'm doing air quotes here. Routine <laughs> software upgrade uh, was behind the national outage last week. It did affect. 10.2 million Australians and impacted an estimated 400,000 businesses. Optus says that its network was affected by, as I said, changes to routing information from an international peering network around 4.05 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time last Wednesday following a routine software upgrade. They said the these routing information changes propagated through a multiple layers in our network and exceeded the preset safety levels on key routers which could not handle these. This resulted in those routers disconnecting from the Optus IP core network to protect themselves. Basically in English, too much water tried to flow through too small a pipe and the valve shut itself off. Basically. Uh, all of the IT nerds in the in in the audience are screaming at me right now. But for people that don't know Yeah. And the people that don't know and don't care, that's simple enough. Uh, The scale of the outage meant that Optus technicians had to physically reconnect or reboot the system. uh, And that also meant the investigation into the cause took longer than they would have liked. Associate Professor Mark Gregory from RMIT University said that the cause identified by Optus was human error that resulted in a cascading failure. He said there was no explanation as to why there appears to have been a lack of redundancy of the key routers, so that if there was a problem, the key routers could swap to redundant routers, which you would expect to be running the previous iteration of the software. Hmm. Optus is facing a number of inquiries and investigations as a result of the outage, including a Senate inquiry that will hold its first public hearings tomorrow, on Friday. 
The telco said in a statement, by the time you listen to this, actually, those public hearings would have happened. So hopefully nothing too eventful has occurred uh, between time of recording and the hearings. Uh, the telco has said in a statement that it fully supports and will fully cooperate with the reviews being done by the government and the Senate. The reason for the outage follows the federal government's announcing earlier on Monday that it would require telecommunications companies in Australia to report their cybersecurity measures to avoid a repeat of Optus's cyber hack last year. Under the laws, telecommunications companies would be classified as critical infrastructure that would require their company boards to report to the government on their cybersecurity strategies in the same way that energy companies, hospitals, ports, and other major infrastructure projects already have to, which I think is is a good thing. It surprises me that they previously haven't been classified as critical infrastructure, hmm. that I feel like this law is a little bit overdue, but I'm not happy. I was without my phone uh, actually isn't with Optus. It's with Spintel, but they run through the Optus network. So I was still affected uh, by the outage. I did have internet service, thankfully, um, but my mobile was was offline for most of the day. I think it didn't come back online until about two o'clock in the afternoon or something for me. Uh, but like I said, I did have other means uh, of contacting the rest of the world because I don't have a landline because no one has a landline anymore because why would you? Um, apparently, uh, redundancy is a good reason to have one. And I, I have a landline, but uh, sorry, keep, keep going on, on with with that. Um, well, I mean, redundancy is is a good idea. I did, I did immediately think to myself uh, just before recording, we were talking about uh, I've recently decided to get a new phone and I part of this was that I was going to move to Telstra. However, the cost of changing uh, providers and, and the purchasing of a new phone and everything like that made me not <laughs> not, not change to Telstra. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that this isn't going to happen again, but we'll see. We'll see in the future. Yeah, well, it's not a. I mean, your uh, level of confidence is understandably not high, given that this is the sort of second major thing that's happened with Optus, and this was this was a big one. And just to like, before we get on to that one, to clarify with the landline, I did have a landline in because uh, it was from the old copper wire days, and in those uh, with that sort of landline. Even if there were outages and everything, particularly if there was outages in uh, the electricity grid, your copper line would still run you back to the exchange, yes. and the exchanges would have a standalone generator, so yep. you could still have that contact. Unfortunately, now it's all just done over the NBN, which means it's essentially digital. And the only reason that I still have the number, I've I've actually disconnected the phone. We had we had two relatives who were clinging on to this bloody landline number that I've just weaned off. So now it just I don't even have the the phone turned on for it. But the only reason I still keep the number is when I've gone down to Telstra and said, uh, "Yeah, do we get any discount for getting rid of rid of this number?" They said, "No," and I think okay. 
Fair enough. <laughs> yes, I'll just keep it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we, we used to have it because it used to be bundled with our internet service yeah. uh, years ago. And so we did have a landline, but I actually never bought a handset. So every time I would call the, the telco if we needed to change something, mm-hmm. they'd say, oh, well, what's your home? What's your number at, to find your account? And I'd go, I don't know. They're like, you don't know your tone and phone number. I was like, I've never used it once. Ah. Ah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, sorry that was a, that was a slight divergent. Just to, to uh, clarify the the landline, I don't. Oh, I'm not surprised that you've got that level of concern about Optus and whether it's going to happen again. We had uh, there was a post on our the subreddit. It was titled uh, "Understanding the Complexity Behind Optus's Network Outage: A Balanced Perspective." Uh, I'll post a, a link to that in the show notes. But there was a reply by one mem- one of our uh, community members, uh, Sunrise Apple Juice, and I thought their comment nailed it. They said, "What I do expect is humility, ownership, and transparency. Transparency when issues arise. We saw and continue to see none of that. Their attitude for something that has had a lot of disruptions, loss of business, even the loss of ability to say goodbye to loved ones, has been far too whimsical and flippant." I don't want to give my business with do my business with companies who don't understand the impact of their own failings, and furthermore, fail to completely own up to them. And that, to me, nailed a lot of people's responses to this. They just seemed to have gone. Optus seemed to have gone down the the spin path first off. The sort of look at this shiny thing over here. There was just no real level of. Uh, confidence that they were in control and even though things are back in uh, place now i can understand you as an optus customer thinking "Ah, is there gonna be another one yeah that and that yeah that's my concern is this gonna happen again when is this gonna happen again um do i need to have some sort of redundant system or, or change telcos, which I'm still looking at the Telstra option. Um, I, I did get a new phone, uh, but I just bought it outright instead. But I, I am thinking about going to just a SIM only plan with, with Telstra to, um, you know, start using that network just because the reliability seems a lot, <laughs> a lot better between the hacking and now, of course, this. And I think what that user said really summed it up really nicely that the Optus with both the hacking and this seem to want to blame everybody else except for themselves. They're not, yep. they're not owning this problem. And both times it was them that did it both times. There's no one else to blame here. It's, it is, it's an Optus problem. Um, and it, it is a real shame to see them just not, not, um, taking, taking responsibility as they should. And quite frankly, I hope the Senate inquiry that starts tomorrow um, really grills them for it because I think I think they deserve it. Yeah, I agree. I think they deserve a grilling. And even if even if it was even it, even if it came out that it wasn't their it wasn't their um, their fault, you still have to be on the front foot and say, listen we're in charge of this. This is a service we're providing. We're accepting all responsibility for this. We're going to do with it. Look, it turned out it wasn't our, our fault, but this is what we're doing in the future to ensure that we can avoid having that happen. The the kindergarten pointing the finger at somebody else 
doesn't really wash anymore. And I think people have had enough of it with uh, large corporations trying to just spin it that way. And I think businesses too. I mean, I went down to the um, the local fruit and veg and uh, young woman behind the counter had made some comment. She was having, still having problems with the machine and said, oh, God, I wonder if Optus is down again. And this was, I think it was the next day or the day after. So her confidence in it was rattled because they had a whole day where basically people were coming in and, you know, in the post-COOF environment where the tap and pay has been really sort of hammered in, uh, people couldn't do that anymore. Uh, so I'm not 100% yeah. sure how they, they handled it. But for someone like that in a business, it's a big impact on their business too. I would, if if my business was impacted by this outage, there would be absolutely no... Uh, no question about it, I would be changing providers. And I know a lot of them don't get to choose. They just get, you know, depending on their bank, the the merchant services are often through their bank and, you know, the, the machines and that just, they just get what they get, right? Um, but if I did have a choice, I would immediately make that change because yeah. I can't, my confidence would be shaken. And, my, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's frustrating as a customer uh, as a consumer customer dealing with this sort of stuff. Uh, but as I said, I had other means of communication, so it wasn't the end of the world. But if this is your business, your livelihood, if you can't take payments for products, if you're working in a retail environment and you literally just can't take money, mm. you might as well close the door for the day. And a lot of businesses can't afford to just do that. So, you know, I think that's the other frustrating aspect of this is that Optus have cost a lot of people a lot of money. This, you know, lost revenue yep. is is significant, um, and they're not. People aren't going to get compensated for this. I did see uh, something about Optus were giving people free data to say sorry and things like that. It's not see, good you know, enough. That was that was even bull, that was even bullshit spin. I heard that, and they said free. And I thought I thought fair enough. Okay, I can understand making an offer. You're you going to still have a whole lot of issues on how to make good on that. But the PR spin on that was, oh, we're offering them extra uh, extra download because that's more valuable than what's uh, the impact of the outage. And I thought, wow, whoever came up with that one, you need to get back to the thing again because there's a lot of people thinking, I don't really care that you give me another few gig. Give me back the customer's money that I couldn't take. Exactly. And for someone like me as well, I'm not a big data user because I'm often on Wi-Fi. Um, I think my current plan is something like five gig of data a month and I only use, very rarely do I use more than two. So if they said, here's 20 gigs of data for you to use, I'd be like, wow, this is useless. Like, this isn't a benefit to me. This isn't any form of compensation that I find useful. How about you give me a free month on my plan, that's much better. You, you know, then I can be like, okay, sure. Um, but that's not what they're interested in doing, and I think that's what kind of that—that's what rubs me the wrong way about this. Is huh. you know, we yep. saw this last time with the hack, and now it's just—I don't know. I think Optus have some real big internal issues going on that they clearly haven't resolved, and. That is not acceptable, and I hope they get really badly grilled in this Senate inquiry. Yeah, I'd like to see that. And look, the other thing that it um, does highlight is something that we 
we regularly mention on the podcast, and that's the, the fragile elements of modern life and the benefits of basic preparation. So in this instance, there's a couple of things here. Your communication's out. Um, your communication with friends and family's out. So in those instances, now this was, this was a day, uh, could just have easily have been uh, like a full 24, 36, 48, 72 hours. So what are your arrangements? Where are you going to meet loved ones and family members in these situations? What's your plan in the case of communication outages? Uh, do you have printouts of critical documents that you need? And do you have a small amount of cash available? Not sort of like, oh, yeah, I've usually got a few bucks in the, the, the wallet, but do you have something in your, your house where you've got you know, 100, 200 bucks just stashed there for instances exactly like this. Like with, with the fruit and veg, now, it wasn't life or, or, or death. If I couldn't get it, fine. However, um, their system was still having problems. She said, do you happen to have cash? And I said, yep, I've got cash. I can do that. Now, if that was two days, three days into an actual outage where it was a sign-up on the, the shop saying, cash only, then having that bit of um, cash, that just sort of basic preparedness can really give you the edge. Now, I'm not talking about you know, preparing to hunker down for weeks. I'm talking what to do for you know, a few days to, to you know, maybe a week. And as we've often, often talked about in here, just having just that little bit of basic preparedness for your, yourself, your, your family can make a lot of difference and a real life outage like this highlights the value of that in my opinion yeah i think you've made a really really good point and we spoke about this when we were talking about the the cashless uh yep. you know the push push to go cashless and stuff like that um this is a perfect example i, I often do have a little bit of cash in my wallet um but we're talking like less than a hundred dollars uh, but this is a good example of me where maybe, you know, putting, putting a hundred, uh, go to the bank, get a crisp $100 bill and put it in your sock drawer or something like that, just for, for an emergency in situations like this. Um, because if we lived in a society that used more cash, you know, things like this wouldn't be the end of the world. They wouldn't be as big of a problem as they are, but unfortunately we don't anymore. Um, and that's obviously a big problem, which I think is really good that the federal government is deciding to to call telecommunications company as critical infrastructure. I like I said at yeah. the start, I'm, I'm actually really surprised that it wasn't. Um, and obviously, that's been a bit of a blind spot. And it's good that moving forward, they're going to be called this. Um, and because because <laughs> let's be honest, they absolutely <laughs> are. And yep. this the, this sort of thing can't continue to happen this sort of thing you know it is uh in this day and age is ridiculous quite frankly that optus are cutting corners which isn't surprising because it's exactly what happened in, in the hack last year so anyway. well that's how it seems doesn't it it does seem like the, the cutting corners i just throw in one qualifier rather than get a rather than get a crisp um a, a crisp 100 i'd personally suggest getting uh, a, a couple of tens and twenties, so that you've got it in a a, a smaller 
amount. It makes it more uh, makes it a bit more usable if you have to have to do that. I mean, you know, ten tens are still going to give you a hundred bucks. But if someone doesn't have change for a hundred and you're needing to buy, you know, five bucks of potatoes. It makes it a bit more uh, workable. Yeah, you know, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you're exactly right. If you, yeah, you want to, you want a bag of mangoes for ten dollars, and you give him a hundred dollar bill, he's going to look at you a bit funny, isn't he? So, yeah, a bag no, of mangoes. Ex- for, guess, guess who lives in Queensland? <laughs> Shit, a bag of mangoes for ten bucks. I'll buy three mangoes down here if I'm lucky in season. Yes, I live in Queensland and there's a lot of mangoes for sale at the moment and they're <laughs> delicious. And yeah, in fact, once we finish, I might go and eat a mango. Uh, <laughs> but this, I think it might be time now for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Been, man. All right, this week we're off to northwestern Victoria to the town of Sea Lake. You haven't misheard me the town is called sea lake a population of 619 uh so very small little town the site on which sea lake is situated was first visited by non-indigenous people in 1838 and the name uh may have been given by an early settler, Edward Eyre, who was from Port Phillip down in Melbourne. Uh, purportedly, the sea-like appearance of the nearby Lake Tyrell inspired Eyre. And you're probably thinking, oh. Lake Eyre, is that is this Edward Eyre, Lake Eyre, Eyre? Yes. Yes, he is. Uh, oh. The Eyre Peninsula, everything that's named Eyre, E-Y-R-E, is named after this man. Uh Anyway, tangent aside, the alternative version of the naming of Sea Lake comes from Surveyor's report at the time of planning the town, which, as I said, lies just south of the large Lake Tyrell. It is purportedly that a surveyor mistook the mark on the hand drawings as Sea Lake, S-E-E, which had been used by the author of the drawings to mark a landmark. I prefer that interpretation. I like that idea that it was just a total coincidence. Uh, see the lake over there? Yeah. And then <laughs> he just names the town Sea Lake. Oh, well, that's what you wrote. It's sea Lake. So uh, Lake Tyrell, though, is that a saltwater. It is a saltwater lake. It's the largest saltwater lake in Victoria, covering approximately 80 square miles, which is 210 square kilometers. So it is pretty big. Uh, Much of the time, Lake Tyrell uh, is relatively dry. Uh, However, the lake is occasionally fed by the Tyrell Creek. Um, And there is also a salt extraction plant along the side of the coast. Uh, where they extract salt for consumption. Uh, A community was established after the arrival of the Colwyn Railway Line in 1893, and the regional post office was opened on the 2nd of October 1895. The town of Sea Lake is firmly in the middle of Australia's wheat belt in mostly in Victoria and South Australia. And in 1884, Edward 
Lascelles purchased a property called Tyrell Downs and hired 100 men to clear the land and make it fit for agriculture. He established one of the largest wheat farms in the world. It was 20,000 hectares, which is... 49,421 acres for our American friends. Uh, Unfortunately, in 1900, the farm had become unprofitable, mostly due to drought and pests, uh, and it was eventually broken up and sold off. Uh, Today, there is still lots of wheat being growing out there, um, but none of them are on the farm of that size. I just can't imagine a wheat farm that's 20,000 hectares. It's incredible. Uh, today, though, the area is the big attraction in the area is Lake Tyrell itself and the annual uh, Mali Rally, an off road race around the edge of the lake. From 19. Oh. Yeah, so from 1974. Yeah, just, yeah, you said that. No, I. It it rang a long distant bell. So from 1974 to 2019, there might be a reason it doesn't quite ring the bell, or it took a little bit of a minute for you to come remember it. Because from 1974 to 2019, the Mali Rally was held over the Queen's birthday long weekend in June, uh, Australia's oldest known off-road race had grown to include a 100 different competitors who'd gathered to pit their vehicles against one another over the 85-kilometer circuit around the foreshore of Lake Tyrell. However, the race's permit was not renewed in 2019 after a state heritage advisor identified traditional Aboriginal burial sites around the lake, prompting a conservation assessment. The interim report, funded by the state government and administrated by the Shire Council, determined that the Mali Rally posed too high a risk for Lake Tyrell's sensitive cultural heritage, which included proof of 30,000 years of Aboriginal habitation. And the draft plan recommended discontinuing the race permanently. Ah, right. So... This year, and then, of course, COVID happened. Uh, However, this year in 2023, there was a race, but it was held on private land, Uh, not as the Mali Rally, but as a smaller race, and it was on private property next to the original track, and it was a much, much smaller affair. So it's very unlikely that the rally is going to come back, but... Probably for for some good reasons. I, what one thing I didn't really understand about this story was that I I didn't know why the race track couldn't be moved. Um, it doesn't have to be around exactly around the perimeter of the lake like it has been in the past. I don't know why it couldn't just be rerouted around some of these sensitive areas. But I guess that's not why I'm paid the big bucks. Ha. Uh, and as I said, Lake Tyrell is the big tourist draw so it it is very shallow um as i said it it does dry out quite a lot but at its deepest point it's only about 13 meters deep um and generally it's incredibly calm uh out there as a result uh the surface of the lake can become like a giant mirror uh and this happens all the time there's actually a, a beautiful viewing platform, a large, big circle viewing platform that's built out on the lake uh, that you can walk out onto without having to get your feet 
salty and wet. Um, and it's a perfect place to view the night sky because you get a really dark, incredibly dark night sky. But you also get the reflection of the star, all of the stars, the Milky Way, off the ground, off the off the, the surface of the lake. So it looks like a mirror. It's sort of doubled, uh, uh, you know, the Milky Way is above you and below you, and it, it's sort of all-encompassing. And it seems incredibly surreal, actually. So we'll, we'll put a couple of photos in the show notes for everyone to have a look at, um, and I'll send a couple to you now so you can see what I'm talking about because um, I'd love to get your reaction. Wow, I do see what you mean. It's wow, that's um, that's more than I would have actually expected. So, of course, listeners, you can't oh. see what we're talking about, but we will link this photo in the show notes so that you can see it. But basically, we've got a a person with a head torch on, standing on what appears yeah. to be sort of like a large deposit of salt. Looking up at the the Milky Way is fully revealed above him. Billions of stars in the sky, but also all around him on the ground. So it, it almost seems that's like not what I, I wouldn't. That's something I didn't quite expect. I'm I'm guessing that there is a good photographer behind that image, but that's damn impressive. Yes, yes, but there are. I can't stress how many of these sorts of photos there are. It's incredible, um, a sort of an incredible location because that, as I said, it becomes very still and it is very shallow um, and it just, it's this perfect spot for, for viewing the sky, both during the day and, of course, at night. Um, well, except for that, that second one that's got the, uh, the, the sunset and that just mm. reflecting off the uh, – and it looks like one of the, the big things of it is that it's just such an expansive mirror. Yeah, you know, so it, you, it yeah. basically, you know, into the horizon. So it mm. sort of feels like you're all encompassed. Uh, you're sort of in the middle of – of it all, really. Um, it seems very surreal and almost spiritual in a sort, certain sort of way. I'd love to go out there and yeah. see it. I think it would be an incredible place to, to view the night sky. Knowing my luck, though, I'll go there and it'll be a cloudy night or something like that. It's just one of the interesting things about the Two Ticks Town Talk. There's so many ones out there that just think, oh, I'd love to see that. Like this, that was, I was looking it up on the uh, the map. Victoria, when you talk, I thought I'm completely unfamiliar with that area. Now, there's one or two towns that I sort of knew about, and there's one that I sort of been through, but didn't even know that was there. Neither did I, and that's why I picked Sea Lake because I grabbed, opened to Google Maps, and started sort of. I don't know, just not really looking for anything in particular, just something that catches my eye. And then I saw the town called Sea Lake and I was like, oh, that's a bit funny. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting sort of name. Uh, and then, of course, went down the rabbit hole. There is also a really cool uh, 
as you come into the town, uh, because as I said before, it is a, a agricultural wheat sort of area. And as you come into the town, there's a number of large uh, grain silos oh, yeah. uh, yep. just off the main highway. Uh, and they've been painted with these beautiful artworks of the lake and the stars and the sky and things like that. And of course, uh, painted uh, sort of silos aren't uncommon around around Australia. Um, they are something or sort of in a number of, of towns and it is a cool piece of artwork, but I think this one is, is particularly beautiful. Um, so I, another one that I'll, I'll send it to you now and yep. I'll, again, we'll link it in the show notes because I think it is worth kind of having a look at. Um, just a little bit of uh, just a cool little place that again another place that all of a sudden I really want to go um, <laughs> that I previously had no idea about, which is the whole point of this segment. Is it sorry? Did you just you just oh, you just sent me a location to another place? Yep. So that's the location of the grain silos. If you go to ah, Street View, right? Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll have to look them. Up and see the site. Look, the the grain silos seem to have become a uh, rural canvas of this twenty first century. Um, I know that wasn't when they started, but they really seem to have taken off. There's a lot of people travel around and see the different um, grain silo silos. But I'm, I'm. Re- oh, there we go. Okay, just for listeners, DK's yeah, just sorry. I've just sent you an actual photo now. So yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay, that's impressive. It, so we, yeah. we're, we're looking at six. We're looking at six different silos there, and they've painted across that and managed to capture the uh, late evening colours. All those those purples and 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 pinks, and just that little speck of bright orange that uh, you see reflected from the sky down in the the lake. Well, this is that's a that's a damn impressive place to go to. Interesting. I, Didn't it, even the, know about it. The silo art is so impressive to me as well because of the scale of it, like yeah. because they are so big. You know, the silos are sort of 10 metres tall. To paint something that large can't can't be easy. Um, it is cool. And it, you, like you said, yeah, it's become a bit of a, a, the canvas of, of uh, sort of oh, – there's a lot of towns around Australia that are yeah. taking advantage of this because grain silos are – kind of ugly if i'm honest um they're not exactly the nicest piece of of infrastructure very critical for the areas that need them but i'm glad people are using them and and they are becoming a bit of a touristy thing as well yeah i think i think it's a good a good innovation also didn't they so the salt that's uh that's that's a commercial level extraction yes yep uh. so uh. you've very maybe even possibly had some unknowingly yourself in the past. I don't know. Yeah, I just didn't. Uh, just when you said the when I was looking at the the map, uh, when you said the the name of it, and I was zooming out, and then you said the salt being extracted, I, I wouldn't have sort of expected it so far. Well, well, it's just about showing my ignorance there. I was going to say I wouldn't have expected it so far inland, but I suppose we have a number of. Um, Number of salty lakes inland. In fact, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about further. Uh, completely going to go against that. And of course, there's a salt. <laughs> I, I just see you've even, even bloody walked on walked on one. Uh, 
Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's interesting. It's an indus an industry up there as well. But they're they're beautiful. Um, it looks like beautiful surroundings. It looks like too with being so empty that you're just going to have so little light pollution. I don't know how much you get from the the town. How big did you, how big did you say the town was? Uh, six hundred and nineteen people. So it is it is a very small town. So pretty much bugger all. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I can't imagine you're going to get a lot of of uh, light pollution from there, um, really at all. And and also it is sort of the viewing platforms from sort of you know the middle of the town is about eight or nine kilometers away. So it's not you know you, you are over the horizon sort of thing. So wow. You might okay. see a bit of a glow, you know, over the horizon sort of thing. Also, you're facing the opposite direction as well. So you'll have the your back to the town looking yeah. sort of over the lake sort of thing. So, yeah. Oh, another one, really another one to add to the list. Yeah, exactly. Another one to add to, add to the list. That's, look, I, I, I find it a bit exciting hearing about those things that can actually uh, go and, and check out. Because, look, for people who haven't experienced going out to somewhere like that and looking up and seeing the stars you, you don't need you don't need a telescope um it, it, look if you want to take something to magnify just a basic pair of binoculars you can just see so much in the night sky you know you look at uh something like find find the southern cross point your um binoculars at something like the southern cross you'll get Little treats like the the jewel box. Have a look at Orion. Uh, some people call it, I think they call it the saucer or something. But Orion, the the hunter. There's the three stars that make up its belt. When you look at the middle star, or even through an average pair of binoculars, you can see that it's just a cloud of dust, glowing, a big nebula that's making stars as you you're looking at it. You don't need much, and just looking at it with your eyes, it's just magnificent being out there. That's um, that's really good to know about that, DK. Yeah, it's a cool place, and I can't again, I can't stress this enough, listeners. Please go and have a look at the images uh, that we'll put in the show notes uh, because it it is truly something, truly something special. Um, well, thank now, you very spe- much for that tip. Really, that, that, that's good. Well, that's it's not, going it's on not my that list. far from you. Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly, and which is why far. I was surprised I hadn't heard of it. Yeah, probably what four or five hours or something yep. like that. Which yep. up the road, <laughs> up the road. <laughs> well, you know, um, yeah, some yeah, of yeah. our international listeners are probably shocked uh, <laughs> at hearing us talk talk so flippantly about such a long car ride. But truly, for uh, for Australians, that really is a, a bit of a weekend getaway sort of distance. So. Um, now, let's move on. Prime Minister Albanese has gone to China. Here and uh, China's President Xi Jinping uh, have met, and Xi Jinping has told our Prime Minister Albanese that relations between the two countries are on the right path. This was during their landmark meeting in Beijing, which has been the first meeting between uh, our two countries' leaders in China since 2017. So it's been a little while. President Xi said, after taking office, you've been working to stabilize and improve relations with China. It also meets the common expectation of our country, of countries in our region. 
The promising tone in the wake of meeting of the meeting is a far cry from the dire situation of Sino-Australian relations faced under former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, whose leadership saw a dramatic downturn in productive dialogue. Albanese has raised differences over human rights and tensions in the Indo-Pacific, as well as the detention of writer Yang Hu-jun amid espionage allegations. However, it did not disrupt what was a major step in repairing relations. Albanese has said that the meeting was unquestionably very positive. He said that we have what we have done is continue to put Australia's position in a principled way, in a clear way, but in a way that hasn't sought to amplify the differences to score political points. It's a little bit of a burn to ScoMo there from uh, Prime Minister Albanese's comments, but to be fair, he's not wrong. Um, I think international diplomacy is a bit of a tight walk that you need to balance between cultural differences and differences in opinions about sensitive political issues like human rights allegations and uh you know power plays in the indo-pacific and things like that you're gonna get as we say you get more fly more flies with honey than with vinegar and i think albanese is playing this very smart albanese of course wasn't there alone he was there with senator penny wong and i think both of them have played this very, very well to not, to, can you know, change the dialogue, but also not roll over. And I think that's the difficult, the difficult position that they're in. I don't envy either of them, quite frankly, because China, of course, is the boogeyman these days. And when you're going into... From a political point of view, when you go and try and initiate dialogue with the perceived enemy, as Scott Morrison's leadership really painted China as, I do think it's kind of hard to walk some of that back. Yeah, I can understand that. I think that's a fair um, criticism. Look, regardless of my opinions on the, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, it's, it's essential that we have good diplomatic relations existing between nations now if you know if that can be enhanced with you know mutually beneficial trade then you know the threat of disharmony or war can be greatly reduced so you know, in my opinion i think uh Albo and penny wong deserve a deserve a big things thumbs up for this now obviously there's there's a whole team behind them and that but they're the you know they're, they're the face of it um, that's their job. That's what they're doing. It seemed to be successful. Uh, it seemed to that the right words um, were said, and in diplomacy, that's half the the battle. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm 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 pretty I'm pretty positive about this this this. Uh, Visit. I think it was a good start. Look, as much as I distrust the Australian, United Kingdom, and United States governments, I trust the Chinese Communist Party even less. However, it was a positive visit. Visit and any moves towards peace are good moves, in my opinion, because the you know we're still a long way from 
solving the um, all, all the the negative back and forth uh, that's that's going on between you know, China, UK, Australia, uh, yeah, Chinese nation and uh, Western based nations. There's still a whole lot of dangerous ground that's still in in front of us. You know, we've got the two major. Um, military actions going on at the the moment. There's a lot of rhetoric. There's U.S. elections coming up, uh, and yeah, nothing looks better for a a president than being involved in in some sort of war. Although you could you could argue there's a lot of people uh, in the U.S. very sick of that. The U.S. matters to us. We tend to follow it. So I thought it was probably a good move that Albo. Uh, struck a little bit of an independent tone, a bit of bridging of what I see as a great divide between China and the US at the the moment. Uh, if Australia as an ally of the, the US can can reach out and maybe build a couple of bridges, the closer we get to peace and the further away we get away from uh, a war footing, to me, the better it is for humanity as a whole, particularly when you're talking a power the size of uh, China. Yeah, look, you know, we've said this repeatedly at this point, you know, war between China and the US benefits basically no one. Um, and it's not someone, it's not something that anyone should really want to see happen. And if Australia, I think people, that there's been sort of talking about uh, that, People are, people have considered what's the the diplomacy that's happened and the fact that Prime Minister Albanese has met with um, met with Xi Jinping as weakness. And I I can't stress this enough. Don't confuse uh, diplomacy as a weakness because it absolutely is not. And if as you said, if we can use uh, a small amount of that diplomacy to put put these people in the right room and avoid a war why would you not you'd be sh- you'd be foolish not to so you know it, obviously things have been bad in the past um but as the dialogue hopefully continues there's definitely an opportunity there for us to be possibly some sort of mediator um you know ideally However, we can't. We also can't discount the fact that Australia is China is Australia's biggest trading partner, and that's had issues in the past. Yep. But there's also a huge opportunity and benefit there for it to continue as well. So, as much as we say, you know, people say, "Oh, we don't like China and things like that," the reality is is that there's an opportunity here. However, the Chinese government, the CCP. Uh, you know, are clearly not aligned with our values and our Western ideology. Nope. Uh, and as a result, there's always going to be friction there. But I think there's also an opportunity here for a bit of diplomacy for everyone, you know, yeah. to, to get along a little bit. But we'd well, hope so. I mean, we took where I'm just looking at the figures now. Uh, so in 2022, the the value of uh, of tr- bilateral trade was nearly three hundred billion dollars. Now that's an absolute shirtload for a year. And there's some uh, God, I'm going to butcher the saying, but it's something 
uh, it's something along the lines of where 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 goods where goods and services don't travel, armies travel instead. It's 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 a real butchering, but it's basically saying if you don't have these um, trade relationships, then it makes it that much easier to to other another one and to look at them as a military target because there's no uh, value of trade holding back that decision. So, yeah, I think that's important. And the other thing, just a, a lot of people who are saying that it's weak, and whilst I can sort of understand a little bit of that, most of the time you look at these um, bloody blowhards getting out there and saying how it's weak, and you're thinking... If push comes to shove, you're not going to be bloody grabbing a gun and getting there. You're going to be sending somebody else's kid out to fight your, your war for it while you're freaking bloviating there behind some desk in, in Canberra saying how you know terrible it is and how we should be sending more bloody troops to it. You know, it's 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 one of the things that really pisses me off about stuff like this, is people, you know, the chicken hawk stirring it up to get the war and making comments like that, thinking you don't have much on the line other than your, your rhetoric. Exactly. And as uh, Prime Minister Albanese said, uh, we don't want to amplify our differences to score political points. And I feel like that's so important that, he's, that he said that because... That's basically what it is, right? This is becoming political point scoring that we unfortunately see in, in very heavily like in the US, yep. um, where it's not so much, it's just a game. It's not so much about actually benefiting the people of Australia, but as, you know, it's about protecting the party and uh, basically just getting re-elected and, and being completely incapable of actually doing anything of value um, and just trying to, you know, undermine the democratic efforts of the other team just because this is a team sport now. And that's really frustrating yeah. to see, yeah. um, especially when the idea is that the dialogue takes place so that, you know, a, a major conflict or a war doesn't occur. And then you've got people on the other side sitting there going, oh, you're just saying that because you're weak. And it's like, hang on. Yeah, you're exactly right. They're not going to be... These aren't the people that are going to fight these wars. It's going to be um, young men and women from all over the world that are going to be fighting and dying for ridiculous crap that old men are saying uh, in their ivory tower. Yeah. Yeah. Bloody oath. That's yeah, a frustrating side. So good, good on you, Albo, from in terms of this visit just in uh just looking at it as an individual thing i'm going to be giving you a thumbs up on that yeah another one uh another thumbs up mm. to elbow uh surprising surprisingly <laughs> and um, i know elbow you you do listen to the the podcast and I don't refrain from hooking into you on some of yeah. your really <laughs> unpalatable decisions. But on this one, yeah, I, I got to say that's a plus for me. Yeah, I think he's they've played it smart, and also we can't um, 
we we need to recognize as well it wasn't just Albo, of course it, it's also senator penny wong and her stuff i think she's had a lot to do with this as well because she's she definitely has that uh uh ability of of supreme uh democracy uh the the, yeah. the the way she sort of uh you know comes across uh a seasoned statesman if you like um, great comment good look very very good call i don't know whether penny listens to the podcast maybe um i'd like to imagine that she and albo sit down and listen to it together but i doubt that uh, but <laughs> albo send her send her a, a, a link to it but yeah fair fair comment on wong she uh She's done a very good job on this as well. Mm. Now, I just want to qualify this for some of our international listeners that are probably listening going, I don't know who Senator Penny Wong is, but Wong sounds like she might be Chinese. Senator Wong is Malaysian by birth, but she's very much Australian. uh, And I don't think there's any funny business going on or anything like that. Yeah. Didn't even think of that. You're You're quite right. I've got my picture of her and knowing her, but yes, good clarification. Uh, let's move on to this week in Australian history. All right, a bit of a jam-packed Australian history this week. We're covering the dates 7th to 13th of November, uh, but as I did a fair bit of trimming on this, but there was a couple of little interesting um Little interesting stories came out of it. So let's launch into it. November 7th, 1861, the first Melbourne Cup is won by Archer. And in 1876, the Melbourne Cup is moved to the first Tuesday in November. 1920, member of the House of Representatives, Hugh Mahone, uh, M A H O N, um, I think it's Mahone, Mahone. Uh, was expelled from Parliament for his seditious and disloyal utterances. So Mahone is the only uh, expulsion to have occurred from the Parliament, which piqued my interest. And the little bit of background on that was, uh, as the Irish War of Independence, which had begun in 1919, intensified, Mahone gradually moved from a position of support for Home Rule to one of support for Sinn Féin. Now, there's an old, uh, yeah, there's a name that's uh, got a bit of history and a bit of history, got a lot of history in Ireland. After the death in October 1920 of the Irish nationalist Terrace, Terence McSweeney, who had been on a hunger strike, uh, that was in 1920, uh, Mahone attacked British policy in Ireland at an open-air meeting in Melbourne on 7th of November, claiming that the sobs of McSweeney's widow would one day shake the foundations of this bloody and accursed empire. On 11th of November, the Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, moved to expel him, and early the following morning, the House of Representatives passed a resolution that Mahone had made seditious and disloyal utterances at a public meeting and was guilty of conduct unfitting him to remain a member of the House, this House, and inconsistent with the oath of allegiance which he has taken as a member of the house. So the only, only one, uh, but I hadn't heard of that before. 
I didn't even know that was a, a thing. If I well, knew it was uh, so I've just looked him up because I was like, why would he care? But he was Irish. Yeah, was that's born, why I he, thought it yeah, was Mah- Mahone. Was, so yeah, so he was born in Ireland. So that'll be why. Yeah, but they said he was um, he was moved from position of support, and then moved over to, uh, of Home Rule to one of support for Sinn Fein. Mm. Um. And I'm not even going to pretend that I understand uh, a lot of the Irish politics at all. But yeah, just thought it was was interesting uh, that that was a power that we had, or that we had that they had in the uh, the House of Representatives, and that it actually been enacted. Nineteen forty. In fact, we jump straight into another story here. So look, <laughs> I know that we normally have um, sort of that's a little bit sort of more rapidly based on the, uh, the, the the facts based, but uh, I thought there's a couple of interesting ones. It just so happens this one follows straight on. So 1940, on November 7th, uh, Bass Strait was closed to shipping following the sinking of British steamer Cambridge by a mine. Um, I thought this was an interesting story, and as we often point out on our, our podcast, the Second World War reached Australian shores on multiple occasions. Doesn't doesn't get as much attention. Oh, my God, there were so many horrible things that went on. But it is worthwhile keeping in mind that Australia does have a, a history of uh, you know, geographically being involved in the war. So on 15th of June 1940, a Nazi raider named the Penguin that's like penguin with an eye, embarked on a mission to capture and destroy as many Allied merchant ships as possible. Between 19, June 1940 and May 41, uh, the Penguin's captain Kruder uh, was responsible for one of the most successful operations by any German raider in World War II. So it went from Norway to the Atlantic, Indian Pacific Oceans, and Bass Strait uh, is eventually... Uh, sunk by what was it, HMS Cornwall? Uh, but the Penguin sank 12 ships and captured 16 as war prizes. And what they did was get some of those ships that they captured and turn them into more mine layers. So the mines laid in Australian uh, waters was by one of the ships it had captured, um, called the, the Storstad. Uh, renamed Passat, and that sank an additional four ships and damaged another. So, in terms of ho- horrible things, there was a certain evil genius to, um, uh, well, admire is the wrong word, but uh, yeah, there was certainly e- evil genius there. So, they were laying mines across the Australian coast trying to inflict maximum amount of damage. So, 29th to October 30. 31st of October, they laid 60 mines off the north coast of Tasmania, 10 mines off Wilson's Prom, and 40 mines off Cape Otway. Again, didn't know that at all. Um, uh, let's go through that. So uh, at about 11pm on Thursday, November 7th, as the Cambridge headed east past Wilson's Prom, a sudden explosion occurred and the vessel started to stink, sink by the stern. I wasn't aware that that many mines were laid and that there was that program that had come so far down south uh, east of Australia. Uh, yeah, 
I just yeah. thought it was quite interesting. And that's yeah, pretty cheeky. Uh, <laughs> I I did know about uh, well, you that would, they had you? laid yeah. yeah that they'd laid yeah of all people, of course I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> though I didn't I didn't realize that they had uh, had sunk as many ships as they had and and it was as successful as it was it's no it's interesting it was november 8th 1907 the harvester judgment delivered by hb higgins giving rise to the legal requirement for a basic wage which dominated australian economic life for the next 60 to 80 years uh if we do a thing on ubi in the future that could be interesting to include because essentially yeah essentially the basic wage is closely tied to that mm. um, it's the yeah. same sort of idea really yeah. same sort of idea yeah yeah variation of it uh not in 34 a grasshopper plague devours 20 tons of grain in two hours in mildura that's oh. hun- bloody oh yeah exactly hungry grasshoppers hungrier than a hippo 1935, Charles Kingsford Smith, early Australian aviator, dies during a flight from uh, Alalabad, India, to Singapore, age 38. So he made his name. Uh, but yeah. yeah. That's a, a young, young age to die. The airport in Brisbane, because he was, he was born in Brisbane, is uh, oh. named after him. And oh, there's yeah. uh, one of his planes is actually there. There's uh, as you sort of come into the airport, there's a big roundabout, and if you turn off to the left, which currently doesn't go anywhere, but they're expanding the airport, so it will. But for now, there's there's one of his planes is in in. Uh, uh, it's not how to describe. It's like it's it looks like a hangar, but all the walls are made of glass, so you can look in and see it sort of thing so yeah there's a bit of a i don't know a memorial museum a bit of both to him i'll have to remember to check that out um when i'm when i'm up there in december Hmm. yeah okay uh 1940 ss city of ravel hits (laughs) hits a mine in bass strait (laughs) and becomes the first american vessel sunk during world war ii um so sunk over here uh, yay, we're first. Uh, 2000. <laughs> that was a bit dark humour. Sorry for people. Uh, 2005, police claim to have averted a large-scale terrorist attack after arresting 15 people in Melbourne and Sydney. So this was a 16-month investigation. Police had arrested eight people in Sydney nine in Melbourne, uh, including an Algerian-born cleric, Abu Bakar, who in the past had praised al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden as a great man. Uh, Once in Melbourne, were rushed to court where prosecutors said uh, Melbourne-based Abu Bakar was the leader of both the Sydney and Melbourne group and uh, which were committed to the cause of violent jihad or holy war. So Cleric was charged with directing activities of a terrorist organisation while the others were charged with membership. So, yeah, I do do remember that. Well, what, that wasn't that long ago, 2005. No. So, yeah. 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 Now, I just, for the sake of uh, continuity, if we just rewind a little bit back to the sinking of the SS city of Rayville, it mm-hmm. was sunk by the Passat. 
so the it, same ship, the Passat, uh, sank that that sank the SS Cambridge that we talked about before. It yep. it also claimed the city of Rayville. So I, I just when you said it before, I wasn't sure if it was the exact same situation, oh. but yes, it was. Yeah, so it was it was sunk by the um well the the Stortad which was captured by the Penguin um and renamed the Passat and then uh you know put into becoming a minesweeper. So yeah, and that it was the first uh, US one that was interesting as well. Because the US wasn't formally in the war at this point. Ah. Oh. This is before okay, the course. attacks on Pearl Harbor. Oh, so, right. yeah. So they weren't, they were technically neutral at this point, but like oh, okay, they were supplying Lend Lease and all that. So they, they were neutral, but they weren't sort of. Yeah. Oh, good pickup. Yeah. So that was 1940 on November 8th, because that wasn't to all. Pearl Harbor was, that was, that was 42, wasn't it? Uh, 41. December 7th, 1941, yeah. December 7th, 41. Ah, good catch. November 9th, uh, 1796, Governor of New South Wales John Hunter disbands the convict night watch. He divides Sydney into four districts responsible for their own watchmen and orders houses to be numbered. 1914, SMS Emden is engaged by HMAS Sydney near the Cocos Islands. And during the course of the action, the German vessel was wrecked and run aground on North Keeling Island Reef. 1942, serial serial killer Edward Leonsky is hanged at the Pentridge Prison in Melbourne. 1978, Senke versus Whitlam, decision relating to the loans affair handed down by the High Court of Australia. Uh, the loans affair is also called the Kemlani Affair, and it was a political scandal involving the Whitlam government of Australia in 1975. Uh, they, they were accused of uh, attempting to borrow money from the Middle East by the agency of the Pakistani banker uh, Tarath Kimlani um, and thus bypass the standard procedure of the Australian Treasury and violate the Australian Constitution. So, yeah, there was a bit of um, shonkiness around there. Um, the federal government doing shonkiness? No way. No, no. <laughs> So as much as much as Goff might have, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of uh, positive things about him. But he wasn't he wasn't a little babe in the woods um, before the CIA organised his sacking with the British government. <laughs> uh, minerals. <laughs> so the minister and energy minister Rex Connor and treasurer and department PM. Jim Cairns misled Parliament, and they were forced from the Whitland Cabinet over the affair. Uh, so this was a, this the Kemlani affair was a key pre- precursor to the nineteen seventy five Australian constitutional crisis, which led to the dismissal of the government in nineteen seventy five. And it's such famous footage of uh, Whitlam, uh, Whitlam being up there. Uh, during the this the dismissal, mm. 
But yeah. I can't ever, I can't see it without knowing in the back of my head that there is also footage from that event where Norman Cunston <laughs> is is there as a reporter mm. trying, yeah. <laughs> reporting on and trying to get, and look, it's, I, I think for for international viewers, have a look up Norman Gunston. By today's uh, standards, it's fairly corny. But if you can cast your mind back to 1975, we had someone like that there that was just a puzzle to people both here and overseas. Hey, look, you might get a laugh out of it. If you if you don't, well, I can understand that, but. It's it's stuck in there with my memory as well. Because it's such an important piece of history. It's such a massive moment in Australian political history. And Norman Gunston Norman Gunston is how do I describe him? He's like a satirical he's like a character, right? Uh he he, he was he was like a um a journalist that is a character that's it's it's very satirical. So he's he's basically making jokes whilst this very <laughs> serious and that was the funny part of it, right? But the <laughs> fact that this is one of those moments that's like changing history of Australia's political landscape and he's there is just so surreal. It just doesn't make sense, you know. It is it is surreal because look he's he's uh he's a uh, he's he's decked out in like sort of reasonably uh, like bright coloured things. His hair is greased back. His his character is uh is is of somebody who doesn't understand just how un- ungainly and unattractive they are. He's got typically one or two bits of toilet paper stuck. On his his face from where he's nicked himself from shaving yeah, from the razor, he's, yeah. He's so earnest. He's he's and he's obviously cluey. You know, I think Gary oh, he was Mc, very Gary clever. Mc, yeah, yeah, Gary McDonald, who plays the character Norman Gunston, uh, is obviously very cluey. So it wasn't just up there being, you know, a bit of a galah. He's it's 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 genuine report. It's it comes across as a genuine attempt. To report, and because it's so serious and earnest, if you're on his wavelength, it's freaking hilarious. <laughs> in yeah. my, in my, if you're not, I can get, I get why it would be, uh, wouldn't be a thing. But uh, check it out. Have a look at Norman Gunston at the uh, 1975 dismissal of Gough Whitlam. Um, <laughs> 19, oh well, this got this. <laughs> Take it down the uh, unserious to the serious one. Nineteen eighty-three. Kevin Barlow and Brian Chambers are both arrested at uh, Bayan La Paz International Airport for drug tra- trafficking, and it didn't go well. Um, two thousand and four. Eureka Tower in Melbourne becomes the tallest building in Australia. Uh, the tallest building in Australia is now up your way. It's Q one in Queensland. It's a residential. Tower three hundred. Is that the tallest tower in Australia? I didn't. Re- I didn't realize Q one was the tallest tower in Australia. I've been well, up it. Um, I looked. I looked it up just to. Uh, I thought. Well, I'll, I'll check it. I thought. What is the tallest one now? According to uh, Wikipedia. Yep. Yeah. Q one three hundred twenty two meters. There you go. Um, yeah. It is. It is an impressive tower, especially because none of the other towers. So this is on the Gold Coast. Um, none of the other towers are 
anywhere remotely close to that sort of height it, no. there. So it, it definitely, you know, it stands out quite a, quite a bit on the um, on the the cityscape. Um, but I'm sure well, there are there are lots of lots of other massive towers being built in Australia. So it wouldn't surprise me if it um, it gets surpassed soon, probably. Well, probably, probably, but at the moment it's got the record. Uh, November 10th in 1828, Charles Sturt and Hamilton Hume trace the course of the Macquarie River. 1894, Jandamara, an Indigenous Australian of the Banuba people, leads one of the few armed insurrections against Europeans. Another one we mentioned last weekend, uh, last weekend, last week when I was uh, talking about Laura in the Two Tick Town Talk. Um, oh, God, I've forgotten his name, who was another person uh, who resisted. Sorry, we'll have to have a listen last week if you want, but it was just we'd made the comment that it's uh, interesting a number of the re- resistance from Aboriginal Australians around the, the place. Then, yeah, in, in hindsight, it's, uh, it's good to sort of hear that. That bit of history uh, leads one of the few armed uh, insurrections against Europeans. So uh, Jandamara was initially employed as a tracker for the police. He became a fugitive when he was forced to capture his own people, and he led a three-year campaign against police and European settlers, uh, achieving legendary status for his hit-and-run tactics and his ability to hide and disappear. Again, there's a rabbit hole could have gone down with Jandamara. So uh, have a look up if you want to hear about uh, him, some of the things that he did, some of his skills and what was going on at that time. So J-A-N-D-A-M-A-R-R-A. There were some interesting um, stories. So basically his land, the Banubar land, was positioned on the southern tip of the Kimberley region in the far north of the state of Western Australia, and it stretched from um, Fitzroy Crossing to the Wanaman uh, Wollandi Ranges. It was, uh, there, there was, a, <laughs> again, another whole little rabbit hole we could have gone down to, but keeping myself on track, 1989, uh, Gabby Kennard becomes the first Australian woman to fly non-stop around the world. 2001, little Johnny Howard was returned to power in federal in the federal election. November 11th, <laughs> November 11th. I'm laughing because we there's just I don't know what it was about November, but there was just so many little interesting uh, side tracks to go down. 1867, female bushranger Marianne Bug B U G dies of pneumonia on the Goulburn River, age 33. So Mary Ann Bug was a Warami uh, bushranger, one of two notable female bushrangers in um, mid-19th century Australia. So the, the, the Warami people are Aboriginal Australians from the eastern Port Stephens and Great Lakes regions of uh, coastal New South, New South Wales, Australia. She was an expert horse rider and bush navigator who travelled with her bush ranger partner and lover, Captain Thunderbolt, 
Oh, what a cool so, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've that, heard, is, that can't be his legal name. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Thunderbolt. I knew I knew he was a bush ranger, but I hadn't heard of Marianne Bug. I thought, God, this and the, you know, she was she was a Warrimai wood um uh woman. I don't know who the other two were. I didn't look at that because I thought, God, we're starting to have all these all these details. And normally this week in Australian history just sort of we don't have so many, uh, so many little paths going down, but I thought these were all just a little bit too interesting. Uh, 1880, Bushranger Ned Kelly was hanged for his crimes at Melbourne Jail, or Gale, G-A-O-L as we spell it here. 1980, Armistice Day is the anniversary of the official end of World War I. After World War II, it was changed to Remembrance Day in the Commonwealth of Nations. 1930, the Shrine of Remembrance in Brisbane is dedicated, and in 1934, the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne uh, was opened to an attendance of 300,000 people. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, that's a big crowd. Uh, on the same day, November 11th in 1941, the Australian War Memorial was officially opened in Canberra. Uh, Interestingly, and, during the war, during World War Two, in the middle of World War Two. Yes, God, that should have. I'm glad I've got you keeping me in bloody check with <laughs> this, with on these dates. Uh, and as we discussed, 1975, Prime Minister Gough Whitlam is dismissed by Governor General Sir John Kerr during the Australian constitutional crisis. And Malcolm Fraser is appointed the 22nd Prime Minister of Australia. 1933, the remains of the unknown... Sh- Wait, 1993, the remains of an unknown soldier killed in France during World War I were interned in the tomb in the centre of the Hall of Memory at the Australian War Memorial. And it's probably a bit of dark humour, but I did hear about uh, not long after that, there was somebody walking. There's a there's a pub down in uh, Melbourne called Young and Jackson's, and there was a bloke walking around collecting donations in the pub for the widow of the unknown soldier. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. November 12th, 1860, the Victorian College for the Deaf is opened in a small house in Peel Street, Windsor. 1919, Keith and Ross McPherson Smith set out to fly a Vickers Vimy from England to Australia. That was the first flight between these two, two places, and they arrive in Darwin on December 18th. 1943, uh, Japanese planes make their last air raid on Darwin. And as we've talked about previously on the po- podcast, there were quite a few air raids up by uh, Darwin Way. November 13th, 1916, Prime Minister of Australia Billy Hughes is expelled from the Labour Party over his support for conscri- conscription. And let's expand out to the universe for our final this week in Australian history fact in 1998 the 1000th pulsar in our galaxy was observed at the Parkes Radio Telescope in New South Wales 
so that's a uh, uh, rather than pretend I'm saying I know it. Let me read out what I looked up. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> let, let me go into my vast reservoir of knowledge. No, I'm looking at. I looked it up and noted it down. A pulsar which the name comes from pulsating radio source, is a highly magnetised rotating neutron star that emits beams uh, of electromagnetic radiation at its poles. Uh, basically, it's like a little lighthouse that sort of spins around. Uh, the beam comes around, it can be detective, but the reason that they're significant is they produce a very very precise interval yeah. between pulses. They're incredibly means, regular, yeah. Exactly, incredibly regular, which means you've essentially got clocks out in space and um, this periodicity of them makes them incredibly useful tools for astronomers as, as an astronomical measuring tool. Yeah. And probably in the future, they'll use them for navigation in space because they're like Ooh. lighthouses. They're effectively like a lighthouse with a they beam are. with a beam flying out. Don't dig too close because it'll fry you. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. It's, 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 it's a horrible searing death yeah. from yeah. the lighthouse. <laughs> Unlike the, uh, the, the welcome light that you have down here on, on Earth. <laughs> if you can get out the horrible searing interstellar death, they're, they're actually quite useful. So yes. <laughs> that was a that was a, a a bit longer than normal this week in Australian history. There's something about November. We'll see how it goes next week. But a little bit parched, and I think after that, I'm going to need a beer. All right, we seem to be falling into a pattern with these forex bottle top questions of uh, throwing in a couple of them. I don't mind <laughs> that. That's it. Now. I'm not sure whether your knowledge is going to make this uh, one hard, one easy. Uh, I know the first one, uh, I'm going to put in the, the hard. The second one's going to be a hard slash easy. So let's get into it. How many runs are scored in test cricket if a ball hits a helmet lying on the ground? I, on a, I have no idea. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know anything about cricket. I don't know watch cricket. I, I have no idea. Why would a helmet be on the ground? I don't know. Well, uh, Why I, are you taking off your helmet? I feel like it should be on your head, Junan. <laughs> I, I from from memory, I think they'll sort of if they're. Um, I was about to launch into something. I've got no freaking. That's, that's, that's something. If you if you're wearing a helmet when you're in, um, I don't know, is it is it silly mid off or something like that or something in the in the slips and then you move to another position, you might put your helmet on the ground or <laughs> apparently okay. yeah, it, ha it happens enough that there's like thousands of helmets lying on the ground it's it's a wonder any balls can get through so uh, <laughs> so how many runs do you get i don't know say two it, i don't know not a bad guess think of the two like think when you hit the boundary and when you hit the ball over the boundary uh what's the number in between i don't know okay you hit a four and hit a six That's all right 
You hit, I know you hit a six, right? That's a thing. Yeah. So it's five. You I, get five. Five for hitting a helmet. Yeah. I guess uh, hitting a helmet, it's not an easy thing, but I feel like five is quite a lot. Five did seem a lot to me as well, but I don't know. I suppose it's a hard, um, it's a hard target. Mm. Now, this one, I reckon you're either going to slam it or you're going to be puzzled. In which country was the black box flight recorder invented in 1958? I think uh, this is an Australian invention. It's exactly right. I thought yeah. that might be an easy one. I thought yeah. cricket, cricket was hard diverging on bloody impossible. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that just says a lot about me. I know that the black box flight recorder was invented in Australia, but I have no idea about cricket. So <laughs> it says more about me than it does about the questions, I think. Um, <laughs> well, it's sympathetic on that one, though. Mm. So, yeah, 1958. I didn't even know the black box uh, flight recorders were that old but yeah there you uh, go famously not black they're orange or red yes uh, because black is not a good uh color to paint a piece of aircraft debris no. when you're trying to find it <laughs> exactly like, like the ill-fated camouflage life jackets <laughs> exactly yeah it needs to be a nice bright bold color and obviously they're, they're uh incredibly sophisticated these days and designed to basically be indestructible you know as as indestructible as practical they are very difficult to uh to destroy which is the whole point i guess um yeah Cool. Yeah, well, it's been a useful invention. It's all it's uh, answered a lot of questions, and it's also uh, allowed through that answering of questions to have uh, yeah, significant improvements in aviation security, particularly in those weird little things that, without a recorder, you would never have known what had actually gone wrong before some sort of catastrophic failure. Yeah, which has saved oh so many lives obviously you know uh flight uh flying today is incredibly safe because of things like the black blocks flight recorder that could record instances exactly like you said when there's no survivors you've just got rubble on the ground how do where do you even begin to figure out what's gone wrong um cool so Thanks so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mum I love her. Good night. See you, DK. <laughs> <laughs>